In addition to being responsible for our own sexual purity, the sexual purity of the entire male population was evidently on our shoulders too. The weight of that responsibility felt crushing. But then again, we were constantly told that avoiding lust was harder for guys than for girls. If that was true, then it made our efforts noble. I was terrified of being the cause of any guys falling into sin. So I did my best to cover up and preach to my campers, sisters, and any girl I met to follow suit. I wish I could go back and apologize to every young girl I ever led to believe that it was her responsibility to uphold male sexual integrity. Maybe this is my opportunity to do just that. In the moment, it felt valiant, like we were taking a stand for the men in our lives. Only in hindsight do I see how disturbing of a narrative it was. That's an excerpt from my book, Sexless in the City. You can check out all things book-related at sexlessinthecitybook.com. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Kat Harris, and I'm just so glad you're here. This podcast is designed to dig below the surface. We're going to talk about everything from life to love and pretty much everything in between. So go ahead and leave that Superman cape of having it all together at the door because life is freaking messy. Don't I know it. Now, not only are we going to be real, we're going to have some fun too, because Lord knows I will find any excuse to bring up Beyonce or the latest episode of The Bachelorette. So if you're a new friend, welcome. Make sure you're subscribed to the Refined Collective podcast on iTunes. And if you're an old friend, welcome back. And would you do me a quick favor? Hop on over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and written review. I would be so grateful. Finally, if something stands out to you in this episode, go on and slide into my DMs on Instagram. I love hearing from you. It's at The Refined Woman. Now let's go ahead and get to it. Welcome to the Refined Collective Podcast. I am your host, Kat Harris, and thank you so much, Newsstand Studio, for providing space for me to record my wonderful podcast today. I am so, so grateful for the team here at Rockefeller, for Joe, who's doing my sound engineering. I feel like, Joe, we should do an episode sometime. Because I want to know all your thoughts about everything that you constantly hear me talking about. (laughs) So thank you, Joe. Thank you, Newsstand. Thank you to my wonderful team that helps make this podcast a reality. Kitty, you're the bomb.com. And thank you to my Patreon community. If you're interested in learning about how to get involved with my podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash the refined collective. You can join my community for as little as $5 a month. And when you do, you get access to weekly VIP videos that I drop everything from what does doubting my faith look like to what does misogyny in the church look like to what does dating as a person with a public platform look like to home tours of my own home. So come join Patreon. It is super fun over there. And finally, today is the freaking day. Well, actually, yesterday was the day, but today you are hearing on my podcast that Sexless in the City, my book, the book that I've been talking at you about, talking with you about, talking with guests about for months now is available for purchase. Like you could legit go to Barnes and Noble today and buy my book. It's out. I'm so excited. I was telling a friend that 
writing a book, people say it's like you're you're have you're having a baby. I'm like, yeah, but it's like being pregnant for five years and then having the most horrific birth story. But it's here. The baby is here. The book is here. I would be so grateful if you checked it out. Sexlessinthecitybook.com or anywhere that you buy books. And today, as in Wednesday, April 21st, 2000. In 21, is that how you say it? I'm doing a live free virtual book event tonight. There's going to be lots of prizes and games and just a virtual champagne toast for my book. So if you want to learn more about that, go to my social media at The Refined Woman. You can click a link on my profile and in my IG stories to join the party. Now, on to today's episode. First, we have a trigger warning. Today, we are talking about some sensitive topics that include things like sexual assault. So just be gracious, careful with yourself. If you have young ears around you, perhaps put some earphones on or listen at another time. And if you need to pause and come back to the episode, that is fine. Just love yourself well through this episode. You know that I am a Christian and I am choosing to wait until marriage to have sex. And I thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation with a Christian who isn't saving sex for marriage. (gasps) Insert audible gasp. You can love God and have sex. Oh, my gosh. So we have the perfect person for this. We have Brenda Marie Davies. She is author of On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel. It's such an incredible book. You have to read it. And she also is creator of the YouTube channel and podcast God is Gray. Brenda identifies as a progressive Christian and champions sex positive, LGBTQ plus affirming, science believing faith. Okay, that is a mouthful. And I am very, very <laughs> grateful and excited to welcome you to the podcast. I have like a thousand questions just based off your bio. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It should be uh, thought provoking, I guess. That's the point. Yes. Well, thank you for being here, Brenda. How did we get connected? I'm trying to remember because we kind of started following each other over pandemic. And then we started voice memoing and having some phone calls and... I have quickly grown to really just appreciate who you are, how you take a stand for truth and justice and the underdog. And I'm just grateful for you. I know I'm grateful for you too. And I was, I'm thinking about it and I feel like I'm sure at first your content was really triggering for me. (laughs) (laughs) Totally, It was probably one of those things where I was like, oh gosh, who's this chick like advocating for, you know, saving herself from marriage because, you know, usually in, in evangelicalism, which is the space where I was from, and there's a lot of different Christian sects that, you know, obviously promote the same ideology, um, that theology can get really toxic very quickly, like very quickly. Um, purity culture and modesty culture begets rape culture and, um, you know, people feeling worthless if they've had sexual experiences or just equating their Christianity with just their sexuality and how they're behaving in just this one element of their life. So I'm sure I was probably like, not feeling you at first, but I remember, yeah, I don't remember how we first connected, but then I feel like we did a podcast for God is Gray. So Mm -hmm. everyone go listen to that. If you have the time, we had a good first meetup and I feel like it was just funny because we were like, "Hmm, okay, we disagree here. We disagree here, Mm -hmm. but it was just really beautiful to connect with someone that was just 
open and willing mm-hmm. to hear my perspective. And, you know, my book on her knees is really a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. It's not so much, I mean, I am very instructional in like how to live with sexual integrity and, and, basically do not what I did. That's Mm. kind of the message of my book, basically. Because purity culture caused so much grave pain and so much separation between not only myself and my own body and my own sexuality, but between myself and my spirituality and my faith in God. So... Yeah, I don't know. But yes, I do love you. We got our voice notes going all the time. I'm just so grateful for you. (laughs) And okay, before we kind of jump into your story, because I would love for you to paint a little bit of picture of your context of where you're coming from. Can you distinguish the definition between sexual purity and sexual integrity? Because... Mm -hmm. I get asked about sexual purity all the time and it's so triggering for me. I even have a hard time with any sort of word of pure, even though there's other parts in the Bible that talks about loving God purely or other parts. But I think it's been so, it's still such a source of shame for so many people. And you're the first person that I talked to that used different terminology. You talked about sexual integrity and that has felt so much more empowering for me and my story. So can you kind of lay a groundwork of how would you define sexual purity and how would you define sexual integrity? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. Like you said, sexual purity can cause so much anxiety. Um, And the first thing that comes to my mind, trigger warning, is assault. Because, you know, the statistics are staggering. It's like one in three women are going to be assaulted at some point in their lives. And, um, I, I, you know, the numbers read lower for men, but oftentimes I think they're probably exactly the same because, you know, our sexuality is so similar despite mm-hmm. what we've been told. And, um, and assault numbers are outrageous. Um, and men, obviously it's, it's been traditionally a, a larger point of shame because it, it supposedly calls into question their masculinity or their ability to protect themselves. Like it's so multi-layered. So that said, I, I'm not at all surprised to imagine that those numbers aren't accurately reported by men. Um, so anyway, noting all of that, when you're conflating your sexuality with this idea of pure or impure, you suddenly are creating this this black and white narrative that it's just like, if I do X, Y, and Z, then I am pure. If I do X, Y, and Z, I'm impure. And unfortunately, and very sadly, impurity can also mean someone violated that purity. Someone took that purity away from you. And I really resent all of that language. And this is why I say RIP purity culture, burning it to the ground, because all of it, all of these things of like losing your virginity. That's another term that I am just burning to the ground as well. I'm saying it's your sexual debut, not losing your virginity. Because what are you losing? You're not losing anything. And as soon as you start thinking in that binary of I'm pure or I'm impure, so many things can rock that purity. And when you're rocked off of that, all of a sudden, you don't know your sense of worth. You don't know how to advocate for yourself in sexual situations. Like... When I considered my purity lost, I wasn't honoring myself in the ways that I know that my body, my mind, my spirit deserved because it was kind of like, well, I'm already garbage. It's already lost. I'm already impure. So you don't really 
know how to advocate for what you deserve. So I just, I see those terms as not doing anyone a good service whatsoever. Um, And again, especially assault victims who weren't given the choice to like maintain their dignity. It's just that these, these like things are still alive and well, and they Mm -hmm. drive me crazy because I know how gravely and deeply they hurt people. And I hate seeing these uh, ideas still propagated. So the difference is everyone is welcome to integrity. There's no loss. There's no, oh, my past looks like this. So now I have to claw my way back up to God and beg for forgiveness and try to restore myself to my fullness. That is garbage. That is not the way sexuality works. Your sexuality is an ever-renewable resource. And you don't lose your virginity. You choose your sexual debut. Nobody can take that away from you. Like, this is also about enthusiastic consent and autonomy. Like no one can take these things away from you. No one. So integrity is all of those things. Like I said, enthusiastic consent is a gigantic piece of that. And it is, I mean, I've never heard about consent in church. I hope the narrative is changing. I hope people are beginning to talk about it. But I've heard the opposite. If anything, I've heard Ephesians 5.22 used so many times women submit to their wives as a means to prom- as a means to promote marital rape which you know that may be an extreme term for some people to wrap their heads around but if someone is not enthusiastically consenting to an experience then they are being coerced into sex and i guarantee you that is not biblical sex that is not what jesus would give a thumbs up to in the bedroom so yeah i mean we can get more into yeah. all of those concepts but that's the basic gist Thank you so much for sharing that, because I think the more I have thought about purity and I'm on this and you're doing it too. your book is coming out. I'm on the sort of press tour. I'm on a lot of podcasts right now, and I'm so grateful for that. And in that, I'm talking with a lot of people who are more conservative than me. And one of the first questions they ask me is, well, so how do you pursue sexual purity? And I'm like, oh, you don't know what you just signed up for. (laughs) And my response to that is there is an assumption in that question, a belief underneath the question that says, I have the power to earn my seat at the table. I have Mm -hmm. a, I have the power to make myself clean or unclean. And underneath that is a belief that salvation is not Jesus alone. That it's Jesus plus virginity, Jesus plus who I am attracted to, Jesus plus acceptance, the approval of others. And I think anything that advocates for the idea of us earning our seat at God's table is problematic because from what I know about what the gospel is, that's anti-gospel. Gospel says Jesus alone, grace alone. (laughs) Like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. It wasn't, well, who are you attracted to? Mm. No, today the invitation was unconditional love. Now, does that mean that my actions don't matter? No, I don't think that. But I think there's so much problem in even the question of, how do I stay sexually pure? I love the idea of reclaiming that ownership of autonomy and agency, which I think is very pro scripture. Even if we we go back to the Old Testament, we see Song of Solomon 
the big erotic foreplay book of the Old Testament, it opens with the bride giving informed and enthusiastic consent. Amen. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I want him to sleep in between my breasts. Come to my garden and feast. She is saying what she wants. She's an empowered woman. And you know, when you read something multiple times and then you read it a different way, you and I have been talking about this in our voice memos. Like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, oh my gosh, there it is in scripture. We don't have a woman who is just doing whatever her husband wants. We actually have the sexual encounter beginning with a woman sharing confidently how she wants to be pleased, which I think really flips on its head so much of this idea of women be quiet, women just do what your husband wants, if you do your wifely duties. And I think it's why it makes me so upset when I experience so much of church culture in America today. And in that, I would just love to ask you to unpack a little bit of your story and how did you get here today? What was your story growing up in the church? What did you learn about your body? What were your sexual encounters like? Mm. Yeah, so the abridged version is that I was the queen of purity culture. And this is another reason I also have so much grace for anyone that is espousing what I now believe to be toxic theology, or rather know to be toxic theology, because I was one of the purveyors of that message. I drug all of my Christian uh, friends to the bookstore to get purity rings. I was organizing the chastity ceremony at my church. We were all signing, you know, papers and pledging to our fathers that we would save ourselves. And I was the one championing all of that. And when I look back, I realized the reason I fell so hook, line and sinker for this idea is because I had this very, very pure, inherent relationship with divinity since I was a little girl. So I was, you know, as young as I can remember at my bedside, praying for wars to end, like really feeling enraptured by God's love. And it wasn't until I was 12 years old that I went to an evangelical, quote, non-denominational church. And my sexuality from there in my opinion, got completely hijacked by this, this ethic that was based on fear. And I've told people so many times, you cannot build anything on a foundation of fear. You don't build a relationship on fear and you definitely shouldn't build your spirituality or your sexual integrity on a foundation of fear. And that is biblical as well. The Bible says over 90 times not to fear, some variation of that. God says the author of fear is Satan, is not divinity. So it's ironic that we then teach our children. And this is also in mainstream culture. Like so many, if you remember the scene from Mean Girls where the gym teacher is like, don't have sex, you'll get pregnant and you'll die. Here's some <laughs> condoms. Like we have built, you know, this, this whole nation is basically this like, obsession and curiosity about sex and, you know, hypersexualized in some ways, but then calling those women like whores and secular and all these things. And then on the flip side of it, 
the Christian church is equally as obsessed with sex and both cultures are like ramping up this weird perverted version of sexuality. It's either this utter repression of it or this hypersexualized version of it. So when I tell my story, I like to let people know that I lived in both extremes, both polarities of sexuality. And I really believe extreme polarities are where you get into trouble. I see them on a pendulum swing as well. So if I have absolute, quote, purity and, quote, saving my virginity on one end of the pendulum, being perfect, I am white knuckling it to stay up there because that is just built on fear. I don't really know why I'm doing it. I just know that God will cry if I do otherwise. I just know if I masturbate, it'll really make him sad, which is not really um, a powerful motivator to not be doing those things when you're actually going through your hormonal changes as a teenager and stuff. But again, I was 12. So I just remember that I was having these fantasies about the cutest boy in my school, like taking me on a date, having all this romance, bringing me to his car, laying me down in the backseat and like making love to me. And then as soon as I got to this Christian church, this evangelical church, and they told me, no, that is not a thing. You're never going to have that. I was like, oh, all of a sudden terrified. And my whole fantasy life changed. And um, it became, like I said, this white knuckling, like I have to do this. It wasn't based in an integrity that was made to last. And then when that pendulum broke, it was because I had done everything almost right. I didn't quite make it to the aisle, but I ended up marrying the guy that I first had sex with because I I realized this when I was reflecting and writing my book, I really married him because I was trying to make myself right by God. I was like, I've messed up. I've sinned by having sex, but maybe God sent my husband soon so that I would mess up with my husband. And I I made amends for that quote sin by marrying the guy, which is not a good reason to get married. FYI, anyone that wants to know that's not what you do. Um, and then when he admitted that he had been cheating on me while we were dating, I swung completely to the other side. I was like, I'm not going to count. I am not going to let anyone tell me what to do with my body. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I swung completely into hookup culture because when we are living in these two polarities of extremes, like you're not just going to balance out in the middle. Like when your pendulum swings from purity to whatever else, you're not just like, oh, now I have a really sexual, healthy ethic and I really know how to be in tune with my body. It's like, no, you're mm-hmm. you're not doing that because you don't have the tools. And I write in my book, Purity, I call it a God with a lowercase g because in my evangelical church, I saw us build an altar to purity God, brick by brick and worship at purity's feet. And you can tell me that's extreme, but it's like, well, then why do we have so many freaking messages on homosexuality? Why are you talking so much about sexuality and all of these like object exercises, like the chewing of the gum and all of these different things that equate women's bodies to objects? It's because we are worshiping this ideal. Um, So I did this whole swing and I found no satisfaction in either. I found in both spaces, hookup culture and purity culture, I was not aligned. I was not living 
holistically. I was not in tune with my body. There was no idea of embodiment. I didn't learn about embodiment until I read Jamie Lee Finch's You Are Your Own, which is an incredible book for anyone. Please pick it up. Um, so it, it wasn't until actually I read Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, and somewhere in the end chapters, she talks about how she realized that God was always outside of the bedroom of her sexual experiences. And she finally invited him in and said, get in here. And I experimented with that for the first time after really like breaking my own heart and making so many mistakes. For the very first time, I was about to hook up with this total F boy. (laughs) Um, And usually I would be like, um, you know, God, wait outside. I'm doing something bad, so you can't be in here. And I found that when I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this thing that I know is wrong for some reason. I I don't really know why, but God, come in here. I want you to be a part of this experience. And it's amazing because I ended up doing that deed and I was able to check in with myself afterwards. I practiced embodiment in this way. I was like, did that feel good? Did that feel wrong? Oh, it didn't feel wrong because I'm going to hell. It felt wrong because I knew he was going to leave me on red. And I knew it wasn't going to be this like really good experience that would edify my life in any way. And I knock on wood, have not done anything like that since. And not because I'm afraid of hell, but because as soon as I aligned my sexuality and my spirituality and evened out this pendulum and centered myself back to sexual integrity with my spirituality, then I was able to just like vacillate and make really good, healthy sexual choices. And then when I made not so good ones, not crawl across the floor begging for my purity or my worth to come back, but just like living in that, feeling that conviction and being like, okay, this is why I apologize for this. I apologize to my body for this. And now we're moving forward and we're moving on with like greater sexual integrity and health. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's the journey. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's taking a walk around your neighborhood, running errands or venturing out on your own, you always want to feel safe. With Birdie, you can keep doing what you love with added peace of mind. Birdie is a personal safety alarm that is easy to carry and simple to use. When activated, the alarm will emit a loud siren and flashing light to help deter an attack. Birdie is no danger to you, so you can feel total confidence using it. And it comes in fun colors too, so you'll actually want to carry it. Buy your Birdie today for a safer tomorrow. She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash refined. That's she's Birdie spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash refined for 15% off. I'm curious if maybe you can give maybe some more specifics about what did it look like for you once you're inviting God into the bedroom, which I think is so beautiful because when we live a compartmentalized reality, we are actually shutting all of ourselves down. I believe. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. you can't shut down part of you. It's either I shut down all of myself and just don't know it. And one of my coaches says, you're either pregnant or you're not. (laughs) So if I shut down my sexuality as bad, gross, disgusting, it only belongs within 
the context of marriage, sexuality can only be expressed through the physical act of sex. First of all, I think we've flattened sexuality. We have flattened what it means to be human and we have compartmentalized ourselves, which I don't think is a God theology. I think compartmentalization is rooted in Gnostic dualism that says the spirit is good, but the body is bad. That's compartmentalization. But the God story says, God created humans in God's image and said humans are very good. So God wasn't like, ah, like all these other things are gross and (laughs) shut it down and disgusting. No, God just said it was very good. And so the process then of becoming embodied, like you're saying, or reassociating with yourself, inviting God into the bedroom. Can you maybe unpack a little bit more of that nuance for you? Like, did you decide, oh, one night stands don't work for me or this type of sex works for me or kind of what was that like for you? Mm. <clears throat> if you feel yeah, comfortable okay, sharing, if you think. don't, I, that's totally fine. <laughs> no, I'll share whatever. I, I'm too much of an open book mm-hmm. half the time. <laughs> um, well, yeah, your, your con- the concept you're bringing up of duality is so interesting to me because my mind was blown when I learned that the root word of Satan actually means the divider. So when we're divided in any sense, whether we're divided, you know, politically in this really angry, like sad way, or whether we're divided body and soul or sexuality and spirituality, that is in its literal definition, satanic. And um, yeah, so I completely agree with you there. But the specifics are really interesting because to be frank, when I started God is Gray, this is three years now, we had our three-year anniversary on Valentine's Day. Um, But at the time I was... I just picked up my camera in a rage because I saw a girl on YouTube calling God her birth control. And one of my main, main issues is um, I am pro-choice, but I identify that way because abortion breaks my heart and I want to prevent abortion as much as possible. And the reason it's important for me to vote pro-choice is because pro-choice policy makers often advocate for the policies that actually prevent unwanted pregnancy and therefore obviously prevent abortion. So we're talking about, you know, all these triggering things for a lot of conservative people like universal health care or, you know, just having resources for the poor or having um, birth control be easily accessible. All of these things prevent pregnancy. So um, that said, I was really furious when I saw this girl saying it because she was like, obviously living in, in affluence. She had this big house behind her and her YouTube setup, and she was married. And I'm like, yeah, maybe God can be your birth control. Maybe you can sit back and like invite pregnancy whenever you want. But the majority of women that abort are actually already mothers that are just afraid they're not going to be able to uh, support the next child that they're going to have. So I just thought it was so irresponsible for her to pretend biology didn't exist, which is why I have one of those disclaimers of science believing Christian. So I'm like, you can be spiritual, but biology is also real. Science is also a validated and real thing that also completely illuminates God. And they, they shine off of each other beautifully, in my opinion. But all of that said, I wasn't prepared to be some sort of like 
perfect example of Christianity or anything like that. I just wanted to express the ideologies that had hurt me and explain to people why I was a feminist, why it's important to vote pro-choice, why it's important to be sex positive and affirm LGBTQ people. And, um, but in my own life, I had just come out of one of the most abusive, I mean, the most abusive relationship of my entire life, which is where my book On Her Knees culminates to and ends up like basically being the moment where I finally am like, I am just on the floor. My sexuality, my self-worth is just diminished to nothing at this point, And I need to get my life back on track. So I think it was it was probably about two years after that, that God is Gray came into fruition. So I wasn't as healed at all as I am right now. And I was still basically having sexual experiences and being really casual and not fully understanding sexual integrity. Like when I read Linda Kane's Klein's book, I think I was already a year into God is Gray. So I had yet to invite God into the bedroom. Um, and then I was just having a casual sexual relationship with one of my best friends. And that's how I got pregnant. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't like a, living out a specific sexual ethic that I was like, hey, everybody, here's how I'm doing it right. Come follow me. But that's been such an important part of God is Great to me is to say, we are all on different journeys at different paces. We all have different life experiences. We're all having different relational situations as it pertains to our sexuality. And I'm not going to dishonor or tell anyone that they're doing it wrong. Because to me, you're only doing it wrong if you're causing harm, if you're having sex without consent, without integrity, um, Basically, if you're ingesting harm, if you're hurting yourself or if you're outputting harm, you that to me is sin. That is sinful sex. But otherwise, I'm just sitting back and, and allowing journeys, allowing questions, allowing people to express what they believe to be real and giving them the freedom to change their mind on things by just seeing if I can lead the way by, by exercising my own level of sexual integrity and learning about that as much as I possibly can. So, you know, it was just funny because it was like, I had a baby with a relationship that wasn't necessarily going to last. And I just am now co-parenting. And it's like, that's all good. That's my journey. Like I might, I might not recommend that for everybody. It's not easy, but I'm very much a cautionary tale. I'm just like, maybe do what I say and don't do almost anything that I did. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't want to diminish... I think you have so much to offer and so much wisdom to offer. And yeah, maybe don't do what you did, but also I think you're hitting on something that feels so important to me is we all are on a path and I don't regret anything that I have or haven't done. I might not do it the same way again, but it's brought me here. I am so grateful that you are in a place where you're not saying I did everything perfect and do exactly what I do because who can actually ever say that? No one, no one can. Like I think a lot of people whenever, do <laughs> a lot of people do. And I think it's a huge reason why there's so much shame and confusion because we're hearing, Oh, my pastor told me for 10 years to not have sex outside of marriage. And wait, that pastor has been sleeping around on his wife the whole time. What? I mean, mm. that's disillusioning when there's no honesty. So I just really appreciate 
your honesty for not saying, I don't have it all figured out, but I'm trying to walk in integrity with who I believe God to be, who I believe I am in light of that and how to walk forward in that. Yeah. So um, I'm grateful for you for that. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And, and you're right. Like as much as I call out a lot of these pastors and, you know, they might not find me to be a friendly voice in their world. I actually don't mean them harm. Like, you know, even the, um, the name at do better church, there's an Instagram account now that is calling out a lot of, um, sexual trauma and sexual assault and things that have happened in, um, mainstream churches. And when I called out one of the churches that they were mentioning, I was like, it's not called at destroy the church. It's at called, it's uh, called at do better church because, I really do believe in conviction. I really do believe that there is a better path. And my heart goes out to some of the people espousing this, this toxic theology, because it is oftentimes this white knuckling, impossible sexual ethic. Like Mm -hmm. for men, you're not supposed to touch yourself, then you're not supposed to look at pornography and you're not supposed to even look at another woman with lust in your eyes or you cheated on your wife and like all of these things. And then when you have Carl Lentz come out, it's like, you know, his sexuality was so overflowing. Like we saw the lead lines leaning down to the D, like we all know what that was. And at the same time, it's like, what was he like? He was like, um, boiling over basically like trying to white knuckle and, and believe in the sexual ethic that again, like I said, is really based on fear. Like this is why God warns us against fear because fear doesn't work. All it does is repress, stifle and create this impossible ethic that people really can't live out. And then they're forced to go on platform on Sunday and pretend they're doing just fine and remind everybody not to masturbate and have a nice day. And then you're just like, well, what are you doing when you get home? Like, this is really, really difficult. Like, for me, I actually don't watch porn because I have ethical reasons. Like the same reason I don't eat unethical meat. I can't watch pornography for the most part because we don't know how it's sourced. It's not always ethically sourced. You don't know who has been coerced. You don't know who doesn't want to be in that room. And two, I've seen some, of course. And so often the women are clearly not in pleasure or the guys like, entering her at an angle that I know doesn't feel good. And I'm just like, this isn't, this isn't right. But the point being like, I don't have that ethic because I'm white knuckling it and forcing myself not to watch it. I genuinely don't feel good. I genuinely check in with my body when I have watched it and been like, I don't like that. It didn't feel good. And, and it all comes like burst out of this really genuine place inside of myself. So to be honest, I'm not, having sex with anybody right now. But like, if I were to invite a situation like that into my life, I only intend to practice sexual integrity. Um, I don't have any intentions of saving myself from marriage. If the Holy Spirit convicted me and was like, Brenda, I'm calling you to this, like, I would definitely see it as an opportunity, I guess, to like really hone in on what it was that God wanted me to harness in that moment. Like I would, I would not think that it was some sort of repressive thing. I would, I would imagine it would be an opportunity because I truly believe when you receive genuine Holy Spirit conviction, 
it is not based on shame, fear, or guilt, or any of those things. It's based, it's like an invitation, an invitation to do better, to think of things differently. You know, I've read about monks who ha- feel like they can orgasm just by breath work and stuff. And it's like, I don't know. I'm just saying like, none of these things are from white knuckling. None of these things are me reading a list and being like, this is the way that I have to do it because I know myself and I cannot survive that way. I don't, I don't do anything that way. Um, but yeah, again, integrity, like my favorite sex educator, his name is Dan Savage. And he always says, make sure everyone that comes in your bedroom leaves better than you found them. And that is about explicit communication. What did you both want out of the experience? Do, um, is there enthusiastic consent? So often we as women have been taught that guys just want sex all the time and they're just lucky to get laid. And a lot of guys get taken advantage of because we women think that it says something about us or our beauty if a guy doesn't want us. And it's like, no, maybe he just lost his job and he's not really horny right now. And you're supposed to respect that and lay off. So all of those things are just like living in real time, basically living in the moment, looking the person in the eye and evaluating, is this going to be a mutually beneficial experience? And and the last thing I'd like to say is that sex is always a risk. It really is. You can you can get pregnant. You can get your heart broken. But you can also meet the love of your life. You can also have ecstatic experiences. And I'm just one of those people that is open to all sorts of things. And I, I don't see closing that door unless basically God is like, close the door. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I just... I just appreciate you sharing your experience. And I know someone who is listening to this is thinking a couple of things. One is, <laughs> and I know you talk about this a lot on your feed. Brenda can't be a Christian. Like Brenda can't be a Christian if this is what she thinks. Yeah. And we, we take it upon ourselves to identify whether or not a person is a true or legit Christian. So I know that's coming across someone's mind. And then I wanted to ask you, when I even went on Instagram and said, hey, Brenda from God is Great is coming on my podcast. What question do you have for her? This was the number one question people sent in is, what do you think the Bible has to say about premarital sex? Yeah, well, this is really interesting too, because my biggest battle has been helping people to affirm LGBTQ Christianity. And um, obviously I'm always more like nervous when I talk to anyone who has a conservative audience because I can hear the naysayers in my head. Like I already know all the scripts. I know everything that's being said or thought of. And I just want to extend my compassion and say, I know I feel you and I've been there. But again, I share all of these things because... I know that I was so disembodied, disconjointed, and and genuinely unhappy. And not only unhappy, but also obsessed with sex. Like there was nothing else I could think of. It was like, I had been anorexic for a moment as well. And I really equated this concept of purity to anorexia, where it was just like, I was so starved for it that I just couldn't think of anything else. It's just like, I need to eat. Because to your point that you made earlier, we are sexual beings. There's no such thing as just squashing that and then taking it out of a cupboard the moment you get married and being like, here we are, we're fully healed, we're fully sexual. Like you are sexual forever. And that's why I love your book so much, Kat, because you invite people to 
to embrace that reality. And, um, I think that's crucially important because like you said earlier as well, as soon as we start like taking pieces of ourselves apart and trying to move to different areas, we become disconjointed and we can't, we can't live and thrive. So that's just what it is for me. And then it's like, okay, well, if I know that my quote feeling, which people demonize me for all the time, like you can't go off your feelings, like that's anti-Christian. And I'm like, okay, but what's a feeling? Like to me, I'm talking about true intuitive knowing. I'm talking about really sitting in prayer and addressing these issues in a real way with divinity. And in that journey, for me, it's just like, this is what I've landed on. And and then I know that the conservative Christian wants me to back these things up biblically. And with the LGBTQ issue, I have learned straight up that you can prove that it's a sin and you can prove that it's not a sin based on what scriptures you're putting importance on based on just the lens in which you're reading the scripture, whether you take it literally or you take it, you know, as I do, which is this ancient text that's full of stories that is full of divinity that does have God's word in it, but also has human beings and their experiences in it. Um, so it all depends on the lens in which you're looking at it. But biblically, sometimes I laugh because I'm like, okay, if you're really into biblical marriage, then we're talking about polygamy and men having literal ownership. In biblical times, women were actual property of men. So all of that said, the Bible is complex when it comes to sexuality and women's worth and our virginity and these sorts of things. But when I see Jesus enter the scene, I just see him advocating for our power, for our wholeness. I was also talking yesterday about the story of Mary and Martha. I don't know about you, Kat, but I've always heard it told through this specific lens of Martha was a big, dumb idiot She was scurrying around the kitchen. She was totally missing the blessing of Jesus being in her house because she was too busy being a busybody and missing the blessing. I have heard that narrative so many times in evangelicalism. When I was like in my zone, in my prayer, like reading that story for myself, I got furious because I was like, that is not the freaking story back in these days, women had no other choice. Like they were illiterate. They weren't allowed to just sit down and enjoy the message of Jesus. Like they had to be up and at him, like bringing the pizza rolls to the boys uh, in the football game. Like she was supposed to be doing all of these things. Jesus wasn't saying, Hey, you big dumb idiot, you're missing it. (laughs) Jesus was saying, Hey, I welcome you. I'm giving you an invitation. I know all these other men are letting you miss this because this is your role. You're supposed to be working your booty off. But hi, I'm saying, come here, love, sit down, enjoy this, be present. I'm giving you permission. That's the way I see that story. So all of these things said, we are really blowing up and reevaluating everything that Jesus sees about femininity, about being a woman, about how he views us and our power. Again, there's so many powerful, like, beautiful forces of nature in the in the realm of women in the Bible. And I don't see this obsession in Jesus about people's sexuality at all. Yes, he says when two people come together, it is like Jesus and his love for the church. And you have this beautiful communion. And 
I have made love like that. And I want to in the future make love like that again and be aligned with someone like that. But I don't see it explicitly meaning that all other sexual experiences are an abomination and you're not supposed to have them, especially when it comes to homosexuality, because Jesus, you know, like Amorosa said, Jesus didn't say that. Like, he didn't say anything about that. So it sounds like I'm just, I want to kind of just make sure that I'm hearing clearly in response to the specific question, what do you think the Bible has to say about premarital sex? Kind of how you said you can approach scripture and find a justification that LGBTQ plus is a sin. And you can also go to scripture and find that it's not a sin. There's both camps that are equally looking to the scripture and finding those answers, those justifications. And so then it would lead me to think that what you're saying then about the text on sex or sexuality is that you could probably go to scripture and say, oh, here's a clear cut thing where it says don't have sex outside of marriage. And then you could also find justification for it not to say that. I just want to make sure I'm tracking with you that that's what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry. I'm giving the most rounds about answers, but it, it is because it's such a broad question mm-hmm. and it is really difficult to just be like, well, this is, I, I'm not an evangelical. I mm-hmm. don't think the Bible is black and white. So it can't be like, well, it's this verse. Boom, mic drop. Mm-hmm. You can have sex. Like it doesn't work that way. For me, I really lean on the truth of looking at the fruit. When Jesus told us to look at the fruit, That to me is so, so, so meaningful because in the LGBTQ issue, we have been planting the seeds of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and those seeds have sprung up into the rotten fruit of suicidal ideation, trans murder, actual suicide. Like it's been a disaster. The fruit is rotten and I don't see any way around that. Even with conversion therapy, it has a 99% failure rate. And many people argue that it's 100%. Like, I don't know who this 1% person is. So that theology is not working. Mm. And in that way, I'm like, okay, well, you can keep leaning on these like four clobber passages or six clobber passages that you keep pulling out. But look at the fruit. How are you going to mix these two things? Meanwhile, in my affirmation of LGBTQ people, of putting love first, of putting their divinity first and telling them and believing it to be true that God has made them in in his image or their image. The fruit of that is so many people in my God is great community coming to Jesus of really reaffirming their faith, of coming back into that communion with divinity, of feeling that freedom and that grace and that joy, and not just to go to the club and bang whoever they want and be sexual perverts, like this lie narrative we've been given about LGBTQ people, like having no sexual ethics. That's not true of everybody, obviously. I'm seeing flourishing in their life. So that for me is where it's at. I'm following the fruit. When I was white knuckling it and trying to save myself from marriage, it was actually causing a lot of destruction in relationships. It was making me behave in really stifled ways where that felt really unnatural, where I wasn't able to actually fully immerse myself in relationships and situations. And it also caused an obsession in my brain about sexuality. Now that I allow myself freely to masturbate or I allow myself freely to be like, I will have experiences of sexual integrity. 
I don't feel that obsession anymore. I feel just more at peace. The fruit in my life is thriving and I see it. And then also, I wish I knew this woman's name, but the quote goes something like, you know, if you have to choose between your religion and love, you have to always choose love because Jesus didn't call you to love your religion. Jesus didn't call you to love the Bible. He called you to love people. So when you see people dying, when you see people who want to kill themselves, you are making the wrong choice. You're going against love. That's not love. Um, so yeah, it, to me, it's about the fruit, but like I said, it's such a complex subject. Mm-hmm. No, I can't prove it to you in two Bible verses. I can't say it's okay because of this. I can just tell you how genuinely happy I am and not because I'm being a big, dumb, irresponsible hoe. Like I'm not, I used to be a big, dumb, irresponsible hoe. And now <laughs> I'm not like now I live in sexual integrity and I couldn't be living in more joy. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thriving and that's all I can tell you. And I know Kat, you're thriving as well, living with the sexual ethic that I was brought up in. So mm-hmm. I just, I know both are possible yeah. and I know God is with me. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you for, thank you for <laughs> sharing. Thank you for just sharing your heart and your process and You know, I think it could be easy for even someone like myself. I am choosing to abstain from sex until marriage. And I can point to certain scriptures that I believe and I don't call it rules. I think that can invite us into that. However, the greater truth that I believe is that salvation is grace alone, Jesus alone, not what we do or do not do with our bodies. And if I believe that, then I believe that we all have the opportunity to seek God. If if Jesus, like scripture says, is the shepherd and we are the sheep, then we can hear his voice. And I think what's been interesting, the more that my platform has grown because I'm saying, yeah, like I'm in my thirties and I'm not having sex. I can see how easy it would be to get to a place where I list a set of rules of do's and don'ts. Well, so if you want to do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. And I've realized, oh, this is how that happens. Mm -hmm. This is how that happens because I, or we want to teach people our way. So my way is I have chosen to wait. So let me show you what you can and can't do. And I realized that is what's problematic is I can't teach you how to seek or experience God or to hear from God. And is it possible that we could give each other the space and permission to be on different parts of this conversation? And I think historically, at least since I've been a Christian, it seemed as though if If you have sex outside of marriage, like that's a salvation issue. If you identify LGBTQ plus, that's a salvation issue. And I don't know when the gospel got hijacked to being about what we do or do not do between our legs. And so... Mm. I just want to say just publicly that I honor you and I'm grateful for the platform you have. I'm grateful for our conversations. They challenge me so much. And I'm grateful that I can say, wow, yeah, you and I don't agree on everything theologically. We are obviously making some different choices when it comes to 
how we participate with sexual encounters. And like, I don't want to speak for you, but I really respect where you're coming from and I respect your choices and I'm grateful for what you're putting out there. And I'm so excited for people to read your book. And I think people are going to see this conversation and maybe think, oh, Kat's just holding back. Maybe she doesn't believe Brenda should really be doing what Brenda's doing. (laughs) And I can't say that. That's not my job to control you. It's not my job to convince you of coming to my way. Um, So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, no, I I love you so much. I really appreciate that. And I also... Uh, that's the thing that I saw similarly in our books because we both wrote endorsements for each other's, which is so great because they are presenting different ideas and different sexual ethics in a way. But the thing that they have that is grounding and exactly the same is the concept of integrity, is the concept of autonomy and consent and your value and your salvation being where it should be, which is in Christ and not, like you said, what's in between your legs or what you're doing with it solely and exclusively. Like I said, that idol we've built to the idea of sexual purity, it's just both of our books blow that concept out of the water, which I respect so much. We we need that to be just the standard, no matter what kind of church people are going to. And um, and also the permission, like your and I's books both say, hey, this is your journey. This is what I'm doing. I'm presenting these ideas, but you ingest this. And your book asks so many questions of people. And I know that questions are beautiful. So like, again, I totally respect if someone doesn't, um, understand my experience or doesn't validate it. But like you said, like, please don't say I'm not a Christian because it's really not a salvation issue. I, I'm aligned with God. I'm, I'm speaking to spirit every hour of every day. Um, but I think one thing I would love to bring up, um, as we near the end is like, The reason it's so important to me to just be honest about where I am sexually and to just acknowledge like, you know what? I'm not currently saving myself for marriage. I am therefore open to having sexual experiences and we'll just see what happens. That openness to me aligned with the concept of sexual integrity means that I'm advocating for my worth. When God tells me my body is a temple and I house the Holy Spirit within myself and made in God's image... I now know that to be true. And I do feel so very compelled to honor that. Whereas when I was in this very black and white, like white knuckling it situation with purity, as soon as I had lost that purity or lost that sense, I did not know how to advocate for myself. And I know so many women, like especially now that we had Me Too happen, I know so many people share this experience or something like it with me where you don't know how to say no in a certain situation. And again, in my book, I had felt like my sexual worth was so on the ground because I'd been taken advantage of in certain situations. And I didn't really know how to navigate it because I didn't know. I didn't thoroughly, thoroughly know that I was made in the image of God, that I deserved better. So I had this one particular experience. Um, Trigger warning again. It's about like a, a little violent sexual experience. But I met this guy at a bar, a blind barber in New York City. (laughs) I know that bar. 
<laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> and we flirted. He was a babe. Like I was super into him. And I went back to his place to have a one night stand. This is like eight, a million years ago. I don't even know when, um, in the middle of what I call my tramp page. And I went back to his apartment and I just remember that he very quickly got very aggressive and, and violent and was like pulling my hair and like hitting me and things. And he meant it to be sexy. It, it was supposed to be a sexy experience. And a lot of people ingesting porn may actually encounter you with different things like this. Like I've noticed as porn has gotten more intense in the zeitgeist, guys will try to spit in your mouth or they'll like hit your vagina thinking it's sexy. Like all of these weird porn moves that, you know, God bless you if you're into him. I, I'm not into certain things. Um, and you have every right not to be. But um, he just went into this like super aggressive, like I'm a hot guy doing porn moves thing. And instead of advocating for myself and being like, I want to have sex with you, but I don't want to have sex this way, which is what I really want to empower women to be able to say, and men, anyone. Um, I had my first out-of-body experience. I floated above my body. And I remember like looking at us both in the bed and being like, this is what I deserve. Mm. And the reason I felt that I deserved it and I just submitted to that experience was because I felt I lost. I felt that I was less than and worth less than because I was having sexual experiences with people that were consensual. So I ended up consenting by staying silent to something that I did not want to do. Mm. And I ha- it took me years to process that experience because afterwards I was just like, well, sometimes it goes wrong. That's what Mm -hmm. I deserved. And again, in sexual integrity, I want all people to know that a part of this conversation, a huge part is that if you are having sex, this is what my channel is about. You can say you have a sexual ethic. You can say you're saving yourself for marriage, but for the love of God, keep a condom in your purse or wallet just in case, (laughs) because so many Christians will say they're not going to do it. And then they'll go in unprotected because they didn't want to quote premeditate sin. Mm. Or like I said, they'll get into a situation where they feel they deserve what's happening to them and they won't know that they deserve to advocate for themselves, even if they're quote sinning. You are never to be hurt. You are never to be assaulted. You are never to be coerced into something. You are always to be an enthusiastic consent. So again, I think a lot of people that have this black and white ethic can get into a situation like that. And I just really want to encourage you that you don't deserve anything bad because of your sexual choices. Mm -hmm. You always deserve to be in pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm really sorry that happened to you. I mean, that sounds... Really hard and scary. Fine, Barbara, um, man. No. So thanks for sharing that. Um, we never ask for it. That language is is so problematic. And to be able to stand and say, this is what I want. This is what I don't want in integrity and own that. Because statistically speaking, even I, I know this from Peggy Orenstein's research that she's done. Of her the highest amount of unwanted pregnancies are in spaces where there's abstinent only teaching. So people are like, well, I'm not going to have sex. And so then they're not prepared for that opportunity. And then they have unprotected sex Mm -hmm. and the highest rates of STDs are in spaces where people are taught abstinent only 
sex ed. And so it's like, okay, what is it to have a conversation with someone and say, if this is the decision you're going to make, if you are going to have sex, let's talk about how to have healthy and safe sex and practice healthy consent. Exactly. I think yeah, exactly. that's what I want to do. I, that's what I want to teach my children is to be able to have healthy conversations, normalize talking about sex and pleasure in the home, normalize talking about consent. We practice consent every day outside the bedroom when I'm getting a massage and I'm not like, that's too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Or can you rub my shoulder this way? That's a way that we can practice consent. There's so many ways that we can practice consent. There's so many ways that I can own standing up for what I do and do not want. And I think we all suffer we all suffer when there's not a, a culture of consent. So yeah, I know we are going way over time. I want to keep talking, but I also want to honor you and your time and our listeners. So just in wrapping up, how can people stay in touch with you, get your book, all the good stuff? Yeah, if, if you have time, I just would love to piggyback really quick off of what you said too, because I'm now a mother and I'm sure there's a lot of mothers or fathers listening. And you know, like you said, abstinence-only education only doesn't really delay sexual activity statistically, whereas comprehensive sex ed delays it statistically by two years. So there's a lot of like buzz in the news about like, we're going to teach five-year-olds anal sex. And it's like, no, that's not what's happening. Like, like you said, we're going to teach them about the real names of their body parts. And you may fear that as a parent, you may not want them to get in the same sticky situations that you did. You may not want to get their hearts broken, but would you rather your child when they come of age to actually know the name of their body parts, know how to advocate for their pleasure or would you rather them be in like a blind barber situation like me? And we should always be choosing education. Education is empowering. It empowers people to make the right decisions for themselves. And as much as we want to control our children and even our friends and people in our circle, I think that's the the theme of our whole conversation. Like you and I are dear friends and we don't agree on this one point but neither of us is trying to control the other. We're just listening. We're hearing each other out. And I see the fruit of the spirit in your life. And I I hope and believe you see the fruit of the spirit in mine. So everyone just trusts that and give permission to your children to have that autonomy and empower them with that education. Please, I'm begging you. (laughs) Um, And if you need a cautionary tale, (laughs) go by On Her Knees, Memoir of a Prayerful Jezebel. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, I think uh, different places. And then I'm on Instagram at God is Gray. Um, trying to build up my TikTok, even though I'm having a really difficult time <laughs> inspiring myself to do so. But all my handles are at God is Gray. Um, yeah. And it's for pre-sale now. Pre-sale can really change an author's life. And my book is not as scary as it sounds. Like <laughs> It's really something that I wanted to invite both conservatives and liberals and everyone in between, um, also religious and non-religious to just say, this is what we were told. This is why it's a mess. And here's a better way to reframe that. And if you want to be even less scared of it, Kat gave her stamp of approval. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. Well, thank you so much, Brenda. And I can't wait for your book to come out and I can't wait for the world to read it. And we'll chat soon. Vice versa. Love you. 
Wow, we did it. We got through that conversation. I hope you're still with me. Here's the deal. We have two women who love God. One has sex outside of marriage and the other doesn't. Is one a sinner and the other a saint? Is one a Christian and the other not? I encourage you to really sit with sit with that. Sit with what came up for you in this episode and maybe just take with you a few reflection questions. What comes up for you in the conversation of sex and faith and salvation and how that works out? Do you think someone's salvation is in question if they have sex? Why or why not? What felt or feels challenging or uncomfortable to you about the conversation I just had with Brenda? And what questions do you still have? Maybe this is one of those conversations where you don't just turn it off and rush off and it becomes a distant memory. Maybe this is a conversation that you grab a friend and talk with about or grab your journal and write out some of these questions and move through them. Perhaps we give ourselves and each other the permission to sit with these questions and sit with the grave.